This podcast is brought to you by ProfitableUrbanFarming.com. Click on the link in the show notes and learn how Curtis Stone makes $70,000 a year off a third of an acre. This podcast is also brought to you by NewFarmSupply.com. If you go to NewFarmSupply.com, whatever you get, go ahead and put in discount code SAMPLE and you'll save 20%. Thank you guys so much and enjoy the show. This is a surprise podcast. Another special birthday present to me. Today's my birthday. Yeah, today's my birthday. Thanks, man. You got to talk to the mic, though, Neil. Is it on? Yeah, it's on. Is this on? It sounds cool. good. All right. Uh, this gentleman I'm a fan of because I first really, one of the coolest things I saw in permaculture, the first time was Jeff Lawton screening the desert. And then I was like, holy shit, there's this other guy doing it in Saudi Arabia, too. And... uh yeah, Mr. Neil Speckman, man. The other guy. The other guy. Well, I, <laughs> because I was new, like I was telling Grant, like I, I, it's like exactly like a year ago today on my birthday last year, I even found out what permaculture was. Greeting the desert's like a gateway drug. <laughs> yeah, it really like, is. Like for so many people, that's the video that turns people on. Absolutely. Um, when I first started doing this, when I got pulled onto this project in Saudi Arabia. I actually suggested, I said, we need to get Jeff Lawton here yeah. for our initial design practice. And so I, I took my, they paid for me to get my PDC from Jeff. Oh, wow. And then I had him on site for two weeks. I had like a quick two-week apprenticeship with Jeff in Saudi Arabia. Um, and that was enough to to get me going over the last Five and a half years. So what was your experience in permaculture before they... I mean, do you want to get started? Like, what what brought you to Saudi Arabia? Because you've been there for five years now. Yeah. Um, to get to the first question, I'll answer both of those. The My experience beforehand was more in the construction and building design phase. I was not an architect, but that was a hobby of mine. I would study up on it. And I was preparing to do an internship in Oregon at the Cobb Cottage Company. I wanted to learn how to build Cobb with Yonto and Linda Evans. Um, And I was preparing to quit and go apprentice with him. I was going to live with him for a year in the woods in southern Oregon and learn how to build. Yeah. And so I had... A lot of, I'm an Eagle Scout, so I had some experience in construction and building and gardening and outdoorsy, handy kind of stuff. Although I don't consider myself a very handy person. And um, I had read a lot about sustainable design, sustainable economies. I was a big follower of um, the Rocky Mountain Institute. Yeah. Uh, who they do a lot of work in energy and in creating efficiency in automotive vehicles and things like that. So my experience was very limited. 
what I got hired for was I already spoke Arabic. I was very familiar with the culture of the people that we'd be working with. And I had a base knowledge of all the different things that we'd approach that we would approach, whether it was in construction and natural building techniques we'd be using, or in uh, the types of things we'd need to do for permaculture. So, so I had a, a base knowledge of it, but I had almost no experience. Yeah. Aside from like backyard gardening. So, that's not a, that's not what I was hired for. I was hired because I thought I could handle living out there with the Bedou and be able to communicate our goals with them and to gain their trust over the course of the project. And then the idea was that as time went on, I would develop skills needed to do all the other stuff. Um, the other idea going in was that if we needed to bring in an expert in something, whether it pretty much anything related to stuff on the ground that we were building. An expert could come for a month or two months, and I would be the interpreter, and I would be the guy who kind of made it okay for this other person to be there. And we've done that twice. So initially, that's how I got the job. They were looking for um, a local guy first who would be willing to do this kind of work. And they couldn't find anybody. And I knew somebody who was connected to them. And I went through a very long interview process where this person initially came to me and said, we're thinking of uh, doing a, a green village project in Saudi Arabia. That's how we first talked about it. It was a, a green village project. And then who is they? Is that... Uh, this project is sponsored by the King Faisal Foundation in Saudi Arabia. Okay. Uh, it's a large uh, charity organization that is chaired by a group of Saudis. And so initially it was, what would you do in situation X? And I'd say, oh, well, you, and it wasn't you as in like, what would I personally do? It was more like, what could be done with this situation? And I was sending this person information and lending her books and saying, well, these are some different ways you could go about it. And eventually um, she said, she offered me the job. She yeah. said, we'd like you to come and see if you can get this off the ground. And I really didn't like the job where I was, so I, I said, great, I'd love to do it. Um, we got a contract written, and I quit my job, and three weeks later I was in Saudi Arabia. And, you, and how long do you, like how many times have you been back since? I come back once or twice a year for a couple weeks. Um, we're usually back for Christmas to see our folks. And... Um, this year, I'm coming back for the Permaculture Voices Conference. And I'm also going to spend a week in Iowa for Grant Schultz's Farmstead Permaculture course. And that's the only, that's the only reason I'm in the States this year. That's awesome. So I'm, I'm in Saudi Arabia at least 10 months out of the year. That's awesome. Um, so, what all, so what all has been done on the project so far? So what, I guess, kind of give a scope of what this, this green... Yeah, what it, what it turned into was, um, or to set the stage, 
we work in a desert region 45 kilometers south of Mecca, near the west coast of Saudi Arabia, on the Red Sea. And we work with two tribes, predominantly, of settled nomads, people who used to be Bedouin and who have um, moved into houses and their traditional way of life has essentially collapsed due to issues related with land management, legal access to lands, um, and also due to uh, the fact that they're settled now instead of moving around and chasing the rain. So the <clears throat> there are a lot of issues that we're trying to address with this group of people. And the way we're doing it is viewed as a pilot project for rural development in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So it's, it's viewed as a, as, a, as a pilot project with numerous potential applications in other areas. We're dealing with um, education, infrastructure, um, vocational training, public health, housing, economic development, environmental development. Um, and at the same time, there's a measure of cultural engineering going on. Um, so it's, it's really development on a comprehensive scale. We are working with a variety of government ministries to do this. So w when we started out, we were initially only privately funded and only working with other private organizations, and we're merging into a public-private endeavor because there are a number of ministries that are supporting us and have agreed to, uh, for instance, build a hospital near a housing complex that we're building or to put in a police station where there has, it's been a largely lawless area of, until recently. Um, in 2009, because of the efforts of the King Faisal Foundation, they got their, their first paved road and then they got electricity in 2010. They got connected to the grid. So my role in this has been to design a system that cooperates with the geography and the climate and the ecology they have and that restores the land that they're on to productivity. This land is not arable land um, by any sense of the word. And the collapse of the people's economic system has resulted in them becoming totally dependent on their government and to a, uh, a mass movement from the rural areas into the cities. That's a global phenomenon that uh, there's all sorts of problems associated with this because you get rural peoples moving into the city. They're not educated. They don't have skills. They can't get jobs, and so there are. This trend is associated with increases in drug abuse, increases in prostitution, increases in uh, crime, um, on a global scale. And so the idea merged into how do we recreate a society here where they have the government services they need in terms of infrastructure, in terms of education, in terms of public health, and where they also have 
an economic system that allows them to stay on their land and make a living. So that's the project as a whole. And my role has been in uh, designing that economic system, building a small prototype of it, and working with teams of locals to build that prototype and to train them in. This is how we do this. This is why we're doing it. Here's what we can produce. And then training them to manage teams of their own as the project expands. That's pretty awesome. So how do you think, um, I mean, I guess for anybody, because it's, it's in a way nation building, but it's completely different than what the military does in Afghanistan or anything like that. Like it's, it's actually thinking about like how do you, I guess like how do you think that regenerating this land like or land regeneration maybe shifts the mentality of the locals to like embrace do you think it helps them embrace it more I guess is what I'm saying You mean does the like, does the approach we use encourage their cooperation correct. as opposed to saying like a a superpower coming and imposing something Yeah um I think, yeah, local cooperation is tantamount. Uh, and this happens with aid work a lot. Yeah. yeah. Where you'll have a wealthy organization funded by people who are, fr- who are foreigners that will come and, for instance, dig a well or come and build a school, or come and build houses for people. And these organizations show up. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not bad-mouthing the efforts or the intentions of, the, of groups that do this. Yeah. But usually what happens with that kind of pattern is either they don't address the fundamental issues that the people are dealing with, or they end up creating problems that are bigger than the ones they were trying to solve. A huge example of this is um, a UN program in Bangladesh, where the uh, Bangladesh is a very wet country, but people didn't have access to clean water. And a UN group came and drilled hundreds of wells in rural villages in Bangladesh, and they did it without studying the geology of the land and the how do you do that i guess it just kind of blows my mind there how do you do it without stun- it's it's really expensive to do that like yeah. if you're going if you're going if you're going to drill down 30 meters it means you got to do a test drill yeah and then you got to take samples and then you got to send them to labs and then you've got to reevaluate like it's just it's just harder to do that when you've got people showing up for two weeks to do the job, right? So, but what happened was because of the geology of where these wells are, all the wells became tainted with arsenic. And there are, as a result of this program the UN did, hundreds of thousands of kids born with deformities and a lot of people dying early because... Someone wanted to drill a well for people so they could get water. I mean, so do you, so do you think most, I don't know most, but I mean, it, it does seem like, I mean, I remember hearing a story where these people were just like, why give them something like a cow? It was like compared to a cow 
Um, there was a program giving like an African village cows, and they were going to teach them how to use. That's the not cows. like Heifer International. I think it is. Yeah, Heifer yeah, International. Yeah. And then I've donated to Heifer International, by the way. Is that like? And that that one actually seems pretty solid because it actually teaches them a lot of responsibility and everything. Yeah. yeah. Then there was somebody else who was just like, "Well, I just want to give these people money." Yeah, there there are examples of very successful programs. Yeah. But I think the more invested you are in the local people and the more participation they have in the decision-making processes, the more successful your program is going to be. Yeah. yeah. Because they understand their situation better than you do. Um, and they know their context a lot better than you do. So... And do you... I mean, do you, I don't feel like projects like what you are doing necessarily get the recognition, though, and get the attention that they deserve i mean why do you think i mean i don't know i mean this is kind of speculation. Know, how, how much how much attention do they deserve i think i think what you're I'm, doing deserves attention because i mean it's doing something that people think is impossible so along those lines i think I think the more successful you are, the attention will just come. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you're the the attention. attention. No, and 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 most people don't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, sure, sure. There is there is always an element of. I have helped these people, and now I feel better. Yeah. I mean, every like, there's a big push from companies to do CSR now, cor- corporate social responsibility, and that it's just marketing. Yeah. Right. It's 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 nice marketing. It's it's um, it's value signaling. Yeah. These companies are signaling that they they value a certain thing, so they're doing a CSR program with it. And it's that's not to say that they don't have good results. There's always a there's always a measure of self interest in it. But um, the, the I think the more successful ones get the attention that that they merit just by virtue of the successes. People love a success. They want they yeah. want to know how they happen. Well, but also I guess maybe people don't know about the ones that are not successful with I want to bury wells cuz I think yeah. you should bring that to attention so people think and check and measure twice before just drilling a well willy-nilly and like oh there's nothing to it you just drill 30 meters deep in the ground. Sure. And there's there's a whole there's a whole industry here. Yeah. Right? Aid is an industry. And it's an industry that I think has very laudable goals. And there are all kinds of successes associated with this, whether you're talking about decreases in malaria or, you know, providing clean water or um, vaccination drives, you know, all these things are great. (coughs) And I think... I I would like to think for the people involved in this industry that the real reward comes from seeing the difference in yeah. in the lives of the people you're working for and the lives of the people you're working with. And let's kind of shift gears because I went down a I just wanted to pick your brain about USA because you said yeah. that. But so I mean, so what kind of improvements? Because there's a great YouTube video that I saw you posted um, of just like kind of the the time change for what what's been going on just with the landscape. So what other benefits have you been seeing working directly with local leaders and and getting everything rolling we 
are working on very slow processes on the social and the environmental level and the economic level. Um, there's a picture on our Instagram page of a guy I've worked with for four years. No, I've worked with his brother for four years. He's been with us for a number of months. And we ran a, a quick week-long basic literacy program. Now, the literacy rate among our people is probably 15 to 20%. And this guy is a 27-year-old who I think is married but does not have children yet. And he is tracing on a whiteboard in, in this picture, he's tracing the letters of his name. Like he's learning how to write his name as a 28-year-old. And the reason he's doing that is because he has a job with us. And I said, I want you to go learn how to read so that if we're ever big enough, I can give you a team of guys to manage. Yeah. And it's, you know, learning how to write your name is a really small thing in the world of things. But it's a big step for him because... When you're an adult and you don't know how to read, there's a lot of shame and a lot of embarrassment tied up in that. And that's what makes it really difficult for someone as a, as a grown-up to go and say, I don't know how to read, so I'm going to take a class. Um, that's on an individual level. On Another thing that we've noticed is that for a lot of the men that work with us, there are 60 locals that we employ in this project, and they're working in watershed management where they're, where they're building earthworks to manage flash floods, or they're working on buildings and learning construction, or they're working in agriculture and learning how to do tree crops and that kind of thing. But over the last five and a half years, when we've had a project, we're like, okay, we're going to build a gate to our site. And then when we finish that and we take down the supports, and there's a YouTube video of this, but if you watch that video, the fact that they've completed this project, we've asked them to do some work that's really, really hard physically, and they've sweat and they've bled and they've worked for it, and there is a real... Dignity and sense of ownership and sense of ownership that comes from doing a hard job, yeah, right. And no one's expected them to do that before. These people, um, by and large, live off of government welfare, and they're essentially before this project, they were essentially forgotten. And we're asking them to do things that are hard, and we have expectations for them, and the Dignity and the ownership, the sense of accomplishment that comes from that has changed how they view work. No, absolutely. On, a, on the local level. Now, because I do got to I do want to I got to get to a session here, but uh, we'll definitely want to talk to you more about this. But now I want to ask you a quick question because of your work in Saudi Arabia and seeing what you've done to help really kind of, I guess, in a way, restore confidence or build a confidence in a group of people and help do that. How do you think we could take what, you, what, what you're doing there and do it here in the United States in different areas? I mean, I mean it's, it's probably more complicated, but I mean, there, 
there are areas where people don't give a shit about in the United States. And that, I mean, what what do you think we could do differently here, if that makes sense? You know, I think on the social level, that is a question I don't know how to answer right now. On the agricultural level, I think there's a lot of takeaway from what we're doing. Um, particularly with regards to how we use water, how we measure our water use, how our <clears throat> our drive is not to maximize our profit per acre. Our goal is to maximize our crop per drop. Um, and especially in water score, water scarce areas and places where our aquifers are being drained or where our river systems are not reaching the sea anymore because we've diverted so much of them. The way we use water, the way we design our agriculture systems around those need to be rethunk. Yeah. Because the way we're doing it now cannot be maintained. It's really reckless. It, well, aside from being reckless, it... it it's unsustainable. When you yeah. have $100 in the bank and you're taking $15 out every year, you know you're going to run out in eight years. And so you come up with a way to make more money. But you can't make more water. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a, that's so, a so what are you going to do when your bank account hits zero with your water? No idea. I mean, it's gonna be. It would be really expensive to to filter seawater, and then in, there's other problems. I guess apparently there's a lot less fish in the sea. In Saudi Arabia, they had groundwater reservoirs of 500 square kilometers in the 1960s. That's when they first measured it. That's the equivalent of Lake Erie. Wow. Okay. In the last generation, they have drained 420 of them. Holy cow. To grow wheat and alfalfa in the desert. They have less than two decades of water left, and they have entire cities, entire communi communities that have depended on this source of water for their livelihood. When that water is gone, those people are moving out, and nobody knows where they're going. Right? Yeah. And the government is aware of this. The government has put policies in place that discourage they're, they're no longer subsidizing wheat for instance yeah. and i've heard that after this year they're not going to subsidize alfalfa anymore so people aren't going to be growing that but you still have communities of farmers who aren't going to be able to farm yeah and that's that's a big hurt yeah in the u.s we're on that same path. Yeah. We just have more water to start out with. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. But there's, there's areas of Oklahoma and northern Texas where they can't tap the Ogallala anymore. Yeah. The Ogallala Aquifer covers half of the United States, but it's being drained. I mean, why do you think that people are so quick to kind of forget what big agriculture did with the Dust Bowl and everything else like that? And it's... And it's like a surprise that it's kind of still destructive to people. I mean, it's to me, it's like that's always kind of stuck in my head. Like, what was the Dust Bowl? That was a crazy thing. Oh, it was from weird agriculture practices. Yeah. And now it's now we have all these droughts and people are. No, I think I think I think that there's been a a very long trend, especially in the United States, where we believe that technology is going to save us. Yeah. Right, because it has in the past. Yeah. The Green Revolution of the 1960s. 
um, massively multiplied our production per acre. It made food cheap for everybody on the planet. Um, there were some negative aspects to that as well. But in that sense, to that generation, technology saved them. Yeah. Right? Advances in fertilizers, advances in pesticides, advances in technology saved the thing. Now, that's not actually what happened. It just delayed the results. But again, you can't make more water. No. You can desalinate it, but nothing's cost effective when you're desalinating for the purposes of agriculture. Yeah. It's, it just, I mean, unless you want to pay 10 times as much money for your food. Yeah. You can't grow. You can't do that. Absolutely. Um, so water to me is the, is the foundation of why we need to rethink this. It's true that the way we do agriculture now poisons our waterways, creates dead zones, destroys topsoil. None of those things are things that we want to do. Um, but at the foundation of it all, for much of the U.S., especially the Southwest and the West Coast, it's what are you going to do when you don't have the water anymore? Absolutely. Well, Neil, I could talk to you probably for another hour. But, yeah, uh, it'd be fun. Yeah, we, we'll link up again. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what's a good way for people to link up with you and um, follow up and follow your work? I have a neglected blog at twovisionspermaculture.com. Um, the stuff on that blog is going to morph into a book eventually, and you can contact me through that site. I'm Neil, N-E-A-L, at twovisionspermaculture.com. Uh, our project website is albeda.org. That's A-L-B as in boy, A-Y-D-H-A.org. And we also have a YouTube page and an Instagram page. Well, awesome. Well, everybody get on that. Follow Neil. Um, follow his work. And looking forward to bringing another podcast with him here soon. Hopefully before the weekend is over. That'd be awesome. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you much.